Good morning. Today we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul's ministry to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. Paul, as he ministered to the Ephesians, uh, had given them the whole counsel of the Word of God, courageously shared with them the entire counsel of God's Word, and he did it to warn them as well that there would be other people who would try and lead them astray from that. I think that that message is especially important for us here today in the 21st century because during the coronavirus event, all these chaotic events, we have so many voices coming at us, whether they're people we interact with or videos that we are watching as we spend all day in front of our computers. And there are so many voices helping us to try and interpret our world, our world that is happening in us and around us. Which voices do we listen to? Who's telling the best story? Um, who's right and who's wrong, uh, who's giving us the best counsel and all of that. And within all those voices, some of those voices are uh, trying to lead us astray, trying to lead us into the lie, into evil. And how would we tell that? Paul uh, was cognizant of that. He focused on that while he was at Ephesus. And I think as we listen to him speak to the Ephesian elders in our passage today, it's going to be especially relevant to us here in the 21st century church as we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles now to Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. This is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus... He, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come up to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among you will I, uh, will, that whom I have gone about proclaiming to the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. 
In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 36, and now when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not, they would not see his face again. And he, they accompanied him to the ship. Just an amazing passage. It shows how much Paul cared for the church, how much he cared for the uh, Ephesians church where um, they were sad to see him go. He was sad to leave. And he had spent three years ministering to them with his blood, sweat, and tears and raising them up in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get to our reflections in this passage, I want to spend a few moments going over some background to this passage and, and uh, summarize what has happened before this, and then we'll get into our points. Um, this is during Paul's third missionary journey. Um, it, he's going to, uh, kind of towards the end of it, where he's going to uh, leave Ephesus, leave the Ephesian elders, and head back to Jerusalem. But prior to this, on his second missionary journey, uh, Paul had... Um, gone throughout the region of Macedonia and Acacia, which is modern-day Greece. And as you remember, the last couple of months, we've been looking at Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas's ministry um, in Greece as they went and started churches in Philippi, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, did ministry in Athens and built up the churches there. And Paul, um, he, he visits Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, spends about three months there. And um, he leaves a ministry couple named Apollos, uh, named uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. They're a powerhouse uh, ministry couple that had done ministry uh, uh, in Corinth and now Ephesus. It would be in Rome and other places. And um, he leaves them there. And before he does, he says to the Ephesian church, if the Lord wills, I'll come back and visit you. Paul goes back to his sending base in Antioch, which is modern day Syria, the church at Antioch. And uh, he spent some time there, and he launches out, going westward again, spent some time in, in modern-day Turkey, uh, what the Bible calls Galatia and uh, Phrygia, those regions. And he heads west now to the city of Ephesus, which is all before our passage. And in Acts chapter 19, um, Paul does some amazing ministry there. Um, he sees... Many people converted. He, he shows up, and it says in Acts 19, and uh, some of the people believed in the teaching of John the Baptist, which is to repent of your sins and, and trust in the Lord, but they hadn't heard about Jesus Christ. And so he leads them to Christ, and um, he spends three months in the synagogue. Uh, Jews reject him, and so he goes next door to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, and he spends about two years there doing ministry. Um, there's... Uh, and he, he went in public and from house to house, he says, ministering the gospel. Lorraine and I, as you guys know, uh, had the opportunity to visit Ephesus last year with a touring group um, from Biola and Talbot Seminary. And uh, I'm going to show you a couple pictures of what was happening there. This is a picture of um, some of the houses that the Ephesians would have lived in. Uh, these are the type of houses that Paul would have went to as he was sharing the gospel that are cut out of rock. And uh, not only did he see conversions, he saw miracles. There was uh, instances where aprons and handkerchiefs, it says in Acts 19, would touch Paul. The people would take those handkerchiefs and those aprons, 
back to the people who were sick or demon-possessed, and they would immediately be healed. Um, this was also a place of, um, of spiritual warfare. Um, there was a huge temple called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. And again, here's another picture. While we were there, I took this picture. There's a cat in front of um, the temple. thought that was kind of funny, but it was really no laughing matter how much spiritual warfare was there. This was um, a place of goddess worship. And I think Lorraine and I agreed that of all the places that we got to visit, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, and, and so forth, um, we really felt that Ephesus uh, just by the ruins that were there and just the feel you get for the place, um, the spiritual warfare was must have been intense there. Um, there's another picture here in front of, I think it was an Ephesian library. And um, after Paul had been there, someone had put a block and, and chiseled out of, I don't know, granite or, or stone or whatever it was, um, pictures of the spiritual armor of God. There's a picture of a helmet, a breastplate, uh, a sword, and so forth. Uh, just to remind the Ephesians that they were in a spiritual war of the Apostle Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter 6. And there was a lot of spiritual warfare there. In Acts chapter 19, it tells about a demonically possessed man who beat up people who tried to come to him uh, in the power that was not of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it was just a very scary place. And this Ephesus was not only a place of Paul's ministry of conversions, miracles, and spiritual warfare. It was a place of uh, great opposition to the gospel. Uh, we know from uh, the account in Acts, in Acts chapter 19, that because of Paul's ministry and he was leading people to Christ, well, uh, people were no longer worshiping uh, the goddess Artemis. And so uh, the Greek merchants got together and they were upset because they were losing money from all the idols that they were selling to Artemis and so forth. And so um, they brought Paul to an arena to try him. And there was Jews there that were yelling um, as well in the arena that would also oppose the Apostle Paul. Here's a picture. I got a chance to stand in the arena where Paul would have been led to. I don't know how many thousands of people it would have held, but um, you can just imagine how chaotic that would be, have been in that amphitheater. And so there are many things that happened um, in Paul's ministry in Ephesus and when Paul leaves uh, that city, he eventually uh, takes a, uh, uh, goes to a place called um, Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. And he calls the Ephesian elders to him to give them some final um, exhortations and warnings before he takes his leave of them. And that is our passage here today in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. Now, Paul says a lot of things in our passage. He talks about um, how he, he was persecuted by the Jews. He talks about um, his desire to finish the course of ministry that God had given to him to give people the gospel of the Lord's grace. He talks about how he called people to um, repentance of their evil and repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he talks about how he worked among them night and day. He did not covet anyone's gold or silver or clothing, but yet worked hard so that uh, he wouldn't have to keep asking them for ministry monetary support. And he wanted them to remember it's more blessed to give than to receive and to give of their fin financial resources to help other believers who are in financial need. And so there are many things that Paul reminds them of in our passage here in Acts chapter 20. But I really want to focus on two points that Paul made because I think they're so crucial, um, not just to the back then, but to today. And the first point is 
about how Paul courageously declared the word of God. He gave the Ephesian elders and the church at Ephesus the whole counsel of the word of God. Um, it says in verse 20 that Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable as I taught you publicly from house to house. Skip down to verse 26. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of the word of God. Uh, this word declared that Paul said um, from the Greek, anangelo, anangelo, which means to show, to tell, to report. Paul was declaring to them what God had said, um, what God wanted them to know about him. And he, it says that he did not shrink back. He did not shrink back in fear from giving people the whole counsel of God. And this whole counsel, uh, pas boule in the Greek, meant the entire purpose of God, the entire will of God, the entire truth of God that Paul gave to them. Um, in verse 32, he would go on to say it was the word of grace that he gave to them, which is able to build them up so that they may have an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Paul did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of the word of God. And um, it, he didn't give them just a part of the counsel of the word of God, or even just a part that people just want to hear that was easy to hear. He gave them the whole counsel of the word of God. And he didn't shrink back. Um, I think that he might've had fear he, you know, at some level because he was so persecuted all the time, but he courageously stepped forward and gave people the message that God had for them. I think that's um, that can be very challenging for us here in the 21st century. Um, we live in a time where truth is relative. We live in these postmodern times where people say, I'll believe in what I want to believe is true. You believe in what you want to believe is true. And let's all just get along. We all have our own truth. We live in a time that is uh, uh, rapidly moving, if it's not already there here in the West, into the post-Christian age, where people say, um, you know, I've already tried church. I've already tried the Bible. I've already tried your God. And I, I kind of move beyond that, or we've moved beyond that as culture. So the thinking goes, but I still want to be spiritual. I still want to be thought of as good. Um, I'm just not into your organized Christian religion and all that comes with it. And so I think it's really challenging in that kind of postmodern, post-Christian environment for us to step forward as a church, as Christians, um, and to say, I'm going to give you the whole counsel of the word of God, and I'm going to declare it courageously. Uh, and, and I think for, we're very tempted to instead, uh, if we even choose to share with people what God is saying in his word, we're, we're very tempted to say, uh, oh, well, you know, um, I'm going to share with you a verse. It, it works for me. Um, maybe it will help you. I don't know if it'll work for you. Um, what do you think? Uh, and we kind of do this in almost a timid way with people who are, are not believers, or we do this in a timid way with people who are professing believers, who, but who have fallen um, into sin. Or, you know, we, we get very timid and we only want to share the parts that seem very easy, very palatable. Like we want to, we have no problem sharing verses that God is love or God is forgiving um, or God wants you to have a life of joy, have life to the fullest. Uh, we have no problem or God wants a beautiful future for your life. We have no problem sharing verses that, that allude to that. But I wonder um, if that's, can also be, just be a form of cowardice when we're not willing to give the entire counsel of God. And um, I was reminded of that 
in two instances the last couple of weeks. I had mentioned before that a couple of weeks ago during Halloween, there was a professing believer in the downtown Little Tokyo area who was organizing and running an event that um, held up the occult. It was a haunted Little Tokyo tour. And um, I, I, I had met this uh, believer before. He's many years older than me. And I said, you know, should I say something? Should I not? You know, I have no problem having my kids go trick-or-treating or dressing up during that uh, uh, holiday. But he was actually leading a tour that was much more intentional in uh, focusing on um, the occult. And um, I just emailed him and I said, you know, I, I urge you as one brother in Christ to another, and I say this respectfully, but I urge you to cancel this event. I urge you to um, withdraw yourself from this event. And I, I gave him some scriptures of what the Bible says about not associating with necromancers or um, those who are into divination and those who are about evil and raising the dead and celebrating that. Now, he thought about it. He emailed back. We, we went back and forth a few times, and he said um, he still went away. He still did the event, but he said he thought about it my email for about 24 hours, and hopefully that will give him pause next year uh, from doing this again. Um, a second experience I had this week is I met to counsel a young man this week over at Philippe's uh, sandwich shop, and uh, he's going through some issues. He's a professing believer, but uh, he has some uh, issues with his sexuality and how uh, how he's defining marriage in a way that's um, in an ungodly way. And so I had to say some things and, and read him from some scriptures by giving him the whole counsel of God that um, could have easily turned the entire conversation off. And he says, you know, I don't want to hear this anymore. You know, what you're saying to me is, is not consistent with the type of life I'm choosing to live. Uh, but I felt that it was what the Lord wanted me to do. And I think that we're going to be in moments like that where uh, you will know in your spirit, because the Holy Spirit of truth lives inside of you. You will know that you have to say something. And, um, and you will, even better, you'll know that God wants to say something through you and to share his will, his truth, um, his heart from the whole counsel of God. And what are you going to do, Christian? What are you going to do, church? Will we meet that moment with courage or shrink back in fear? Um, I have been told for 20, 25 years by different voices. Um, I've read, you know, pastors read books, we go to conferences, we watch videos, and I've heard far too many leaders uh, within the church say the following. They say, if pastor, they say to us, if you are trying to reach people who do not know the Lord, if you are trying to minister to people who do not acknowledge that the Bible is the word of God, or they don't even believe in God, period. Um, they would tell us that you are not to, you shouldn't be quoting the Bible to them because they don't believe in the word of God. What you should do instead is find some other way to minister to them, love them, maybe tell them your testimony. But if they don't believe, so the thinking goes, in the word of God, you really can't use that. And I never really agreed with that. I never really got that uh, because, you know, I'm a parent like many of you. And just imagine, like, if, um, you know, the mother of a child went to the child and said, you need to stop what you're doing. It's wrong. It's bad. It's not going to be good for you. Can you imagine if the child then turned to the mother and said, um, you know, I do not acknowledge this authority that you have. Um, I, I do not choose this 
to, to agree with the word that you have given to me, uh, with these rules that you're saying. Now, what would the mother do? Would the mother say, you know, um, you are saying that you don't acknowledge my rules, my authority, therefore I must find another way to persuade you. Maybe I'll give you some candy over here if you'll do it. Or maybe I'll say you don't have to clean up your room if you do. I'll try and bribe you another. No. You know, godly parents know that um, there needs to be an authority in the life of the child. And just because the child rejects the nature of the authority does not mean that the parent automatically abandons their authority as a parent and has to find another way. And so it's the same thing with God's word. Um, God's word is the authority in our lives. Whether people recognize it or not, we, we have to declare that courageously, church. And Paul not, only not, Paul not only did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, but he gave them the whole counsel of God. Uh, what does that mean? Paul said elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he said, All scripture, all of scripture, it's good for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, and for equipping the man of God in er- for all righteousness. Paul looked at scripture and he said, all of scripture is good. It has to be given to people uh, for them to be taught and equipped in righteousness and to be corrected. The apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said that it's through God's promises, through God's word and our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we have been given all that we need for life and godliness. All that we need to understand life and to live a godly life is through God's word and a relationship with our Lord. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 4, he said, The word of God, all of it, it's active, it's living, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart and lay bare all of us to God for whom we must give account. And so Paul, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, and others, they would talk about God's word in a way that says all of it is important. All of it is alive. All of it is good for life and godliness. All of it is good for training in righteousness. And when Paul gave them the whole counsel of God, I think, um, you know, he knew the Bible better than you and I, the Old Testament. He wrote a lot of the New Testament through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But I don't want us to be intimidated when we say we need to give people the whole counsel of God. Giving people the whole counsel of God does not mean that you have to have a seminary degree. It doesn't mean you have to have an advanced Bible degree or to be a pastor. It doesn't mean that you have to know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, you know, at, at the highest level of theology. And if you don't, you don't know the whole counsel of God, so therefore you can't give people the whole counsel of God. That's not what it means. It means that um, we are to tell people the story of the overarching story of the Bible. We are to give them the truths as we understand it from the Bible. Um, the whole counsel of God, it, it encompasses the entire story that God wants us to know about where we came from, what the meaning of life is, where we are headed, uh, what the character of God is like, what the character of man is like. And when you talk about the whole counsel, it is simply sharing that. What is the big picture story of where we are and where we're going, who we, uh, who we need to be? What is the big picture story of how we can know God? What is the big picture story of how we can be saved by God and how we are to live and honor our lives uh, here on earth towards God and what we are supposed to be doing with our lives here on this earth? 
I want to give several examples. Um, I'm just going to give them one after the other of how um, not shrinking back from knowing and declaring the word of God or looking at the whole counsel of God helped me to interpret my experiences here this past week. Um, and I thought it was just really practical um, in different ways. There were different areas where I looked at things that I was watching or conversations I was having or things that I was thinking and comparing it to the whole counsel of the Word of God, saying this part of the Word of God says that, this part of the Word of God says that, and it helped me to discern and to come to uh, what is right and true and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. Uh, number one, I was watching a, a famous golf tournament uh, this weekend. It's called the Masters. Uh, I used to play golf. I used to idolize it for like 20 years. I, used, I started playing golf before it was cool to play golf. It's cool now among young people. But when I started playing, it was before Tiger Woods was Tiger Woods, so it was not cool to play. And um, I played so much that I got bad grades in college. And um, and when I was watching it, it, I was just reminded of that time in my life when I would spend so much time playing golf, not going to church, and, and, um, and how I used to idolize that sport. Now, there's nothing wrong with watching it on TV. There's nothing wrong with playing it. I still watch occasionally. I still play occasionally. But um, it reminded me that there comes a point where you can enjoy something, and then it turns into an idol. And the difference between enjoying something and an idol is when, you're, when God asks you to give up the thing that you're enjoying— or maybe even idolizing, and you find yourself unable to give it up. It is at that point it has become an idol. And scripture reminds me of that. Um, it reminds me that, and Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, redeem the days are evil. Redeem the days. Redeem the days for the Lord, for the days are evil. And so the whole counsel of God reminded me of that. It's like you can enjoy things, but we are here to redeem the, the time uh, for the days are evil. Second example. Uh, during this season, we've heard so much about which kingdom we are to be part of. Um, are we going to be part in the political election season of the Republican kingdom or the Democratic kingdom? And every one of us has almost been brainwashed to believe that whoever takes office in all these areas of government will determine uh, what the kingdom of earth will look like. If it will be good or bad or right or true, depending on which kingdom, the Republican kingdom or the Democratic kingdom, will take the reins of power. And um, the whole counsel of the Word of God reminds me that uh, there can be different earthly kingdoms. There always have been. There's been uh, Egypt. There's been Babylon. There's been Persia. There's been Greece. There's been Rome. There's been the Ottoman Empire and so on and so forth and, and, uh, and the United States. And I don't know what kingdom is going to be here in the 21st century and beyond. But what happens here in this kingdom is not as important as what happens in the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I was reminded during the whole council of God in Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul said, um, you are either part of God's kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, or you are part of another kingdom, the dark kingdom, where there is evil. And which kingdom are we truly a part of? Whatever kingdom rules here on earth, I need to be asking myself, I am a citizen of, of heaven. I'm a citizen of another kingdom, Philippians chapter 3. And so that gives me perspective that no matter who wins these elections, uh, I need to make sure I'm in the right kingdom spiritually. Uh, but I know that through the whole counsel of God. Another example, uh, 
some of you who have financial investments know that the stock market has experienced historic volatility this year. Through the coronavirus, it dropped in uh, February and in March. The stock market dropped about 30 35%, and then it went up, and then it's been going up and down. And um, every day, it seems, you hear stories of certain stocks in the stock market that go up 10 20% in one day or drop 10 or 20% in the same day, uh, other stocks. And so anyone who has investments or understands how volatile the stock market is and what that means for their um, their retirement accounts and their investments. And you hear these financial advisors talk on television. They use phrases um, that when a stock is going up rapidly, they say, oh, people don't want to have FOMO and miss out on investing in that stock. Fear of missing out. They don't, and so people want to put money in stocks that go up really fast. Or they, they talk about, it's not just FOMO, they call it animal spirits. Man, that stock, they say, just increased so much, it just unleashed animal spirits in people. And those are interesting ways of, of talking about what the Bible just says is greed. And the whole counsel of God reminds me that uh, when I look at the nomenclature of culture, that uh, it's really just greed. In the end, now there's nothing wrong with having investments or wanting them to go up, but there comes a point where we become so obsessed with what's happening that the whole counsel of God reminds me of that perspective. A fourth example: um, you may have noticed there's a lot of conversation today about something called Bitcoin. Uh, it's a digital currency that was created uh, about 11 or 12 years ago by a person or group of people that went under the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto. They created this um, this uh, digital currency that was uh, deregulated, and it, it's a kind of a peer-to-peer kind of exchange. And so there's all these alt currencies, Ethereum, uh, Litecoin, uh, Bitcoin Cash, and so forth. And, and there's this big conversation that's going on in culture about what's going to happen to the banking system. Um, does any of us really believe that after the pandemic, we're going to go back to handing each other bricks of paper cash or just, you know, dealing with all of our pennies? You know, um, I, I, for a while, I just started throwing away my pennies. I, they just bothered me. And I, I remember, um, People got mad at me. You know, older people like my mom used to say to me, don't do it because do you know how much that could have bought in my day? And so I was like, yes, yes, okay, mom. Uh, but I don't see us going, I don't, I don't think I've put cash in my wallet for like the last six months. Uh, we're in a digital finance present, and that's only going to accelerate in the future. Is Bitcoin the future of digital finance? Um, will that replace the gold standard? I mean, these are conversations that people are having, but it reminds me the whole counsel of God, uh, where the Apostle John reminded us that in the end times, we will be living in a time when the Antichrist takes control of society, this great political, economic, military leader. Uh, he forces everyone to buy and sell using a mark on them. That's going to be a cashless society. And so no matter what happens, with uh, you know these cashless companies like PayPal, Square, Venmo, or these these digital currencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever happens with that, it remind, the whole counsel of God reminds me that when I look at what's happening at at a lightning speed change in our culture to the digital age, it's just a way of God's future playing out um, to move us towards the end times. I think we as Christians will be out of here, raptured by then. But this is what. Reminds me, this is the Bible's true. What was written 2,000 years ago in the book of Revelation about what would happen in the coming cashless society is coming true before our eyes. And so we need to be ready 
by making ourselves right with the Lord. Um, another example, I, I, uh, I saw this on my social media feed, this video. I keep seeing this video. It pops up. It's like an ad. It's annoying, right? You go on Facebook, and then there's all these ads on there uh, about this one huge video conference that's being run by a self-help guru. And he comes on your screen and he says, I can help you. I can help you achieve your dreams. I can help you unleash your personal power. I can help you to, to be around positive uh, thoughts and have a better life in all areas of your life and, um, and to contribute the best that you can to this world. And I listened to that and I was like, you know, this is a huge question people are asking today. What does it mean to be human? And for him... It is to unleash the, the greatest human being you can be that lies within you. What does it mean to be human? I was, um, I was uh, looking on CNN. I look at different uh, websites for my news. And there was a, uh, a page that was talking about this movement called transhumanism. It's not a new movement. But uh, this article was talking about different people who are exploring, um, altering their DNA, altering their relationship with machines where our wearable technology becomes our embedded technology. There's a woman named Liz Parrish, and she's known as Patient Zero. Uh, she's a CEO of some kind of biotech company, and uh, she has been taking a, a, a therapy that is designed to uh, reverse age her cells, to increase the telomeres, which are the ends of the cells, that will biologically uh, reverse an aging process in certain parts of her body. Uh, transhumanism. There was a guy I was reading about in this article. His name is Rob Spence. And uh, in his right eye, he either went blind or he lost his right eye or something happened or maybe he just didn't like it. But uh, now in his right eye, there's a video camera that looks like an eye, but it's a video camera that's connected to his brain. Uh, the merging of human beings with machines. What does it mean to be human? There's a guy that was taught uh, in the article that talked about his name's Neil Harbison. And Neil Harbison apparently was born colorblind, but he voluntarily chose to have an antenna connected to the back of his head. And this antenna actually goes up and it comes over like to the top of his head. It's almost like one of those lights that you would put on a book to read at night. And apparently it helps him to his brain to sense colors in some way with that connection. Um, I was watching this CNN ad while I was on their website and it said, what does it mean to be human, their ad said. Uh, we're so divided right now. What does it mean to be human? It means to trust each other. And when we trust each other, great things can happen. And I listen to all of these voices coming my way. And I think about the whole counsel of God. And it reminds me, what does it mean to be human? It means to be human, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The, what does it mean to be human? Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the first Adam fell in sin, but the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ, for whom we have salvation in his resurrection. What does it mean to be human? It means to know Jesus, to have his divine humanity living through your fallen humanity. But the whole counsel of God reminds me of that, how to interpret these conversations that are ha- being had in culture um, there was another, another example is I was watching a video uh, this week and it was a famous billionaire, uh, multi-billionaire, and he was talking about a company they started that is encouraging people to take hallucinogenic drugs 
uh, psilocybin, I believe, um, which is a chemical that's found in mushrooms. Not the kind of mushrooms you eat, but the kind of mushrooms that are used for um, psychedelics, hallucinogenics. And he was saying, um, I'm encouraging people to take these um, hallucinogens to help them with their depression. Now, uh, you can get... Uh, you can take medication that's prescribed by a doctor or a psychologist. I think that's entirely valid on a lot of levels. But um, to take hallucinogens that are designed to warp your brain, um, I think can be very dangerous. And the whole counsel of the Word of God reminds me in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul said, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, do not allow your mind to be altered by mind-altering chemicals um, like too much wine, like a hallucinogenic drug, but rather be filled by the Holy Spirit so he can influence your mind. Um, last example, I, was, uh, I mentioned that I was counseling a young man this week who was having issues with his sexuality and how he was viewing a, a future of what marriage should look like. And um, he, he, he was a professing believer, and, but he's kind of gone astray in many ways, but he's kind of struggling with what's happening in him. And I re- read with him while we were sitting down eating at lunch, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, uh, 32, 33, around there. And in this passage, I said, you know, um, I'm going to use God's word to help interpret your experience. And if you know that passage, I'll summarize it. Um, God says through Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 33, is that we were created to worship God. That's how God created us. And God created us for worship, um, and God is the source of life, and that's why we worship him. He created life. He is the source of life, and uh, there are people who chose to worship him, but there are also people who choose not to worship God. The passage says in Romans that people, when we choose not to worship God, we then move to worship other things, people, and ultimately ourselves. There is no spiritually neutral gear to the human spirit. It's always worshiping something or someone. And if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping things, other people, or ourselves. The passage goes on to say that, um, that we can come to a point where we reject the worship of God, um, where God doesn't want to be around that. And it says in three times in that passage that God just simply removed himself from people who rejected him, who rejected his offer of life through worshiping him. And so what happens, I said to this young man, in the human soul, is when we are cut off from the worship of the true and living God, we're cut off from our source of life, spiritual life. Um, And when God removes himself from that because of our hardened heart, we start to become ravenous in our spirit because we are hungering and thirsting for life. And so we start to consume people sexually in sexually um, immoral ways, the passage goes on to say. And I said, at the end... um, This is what Paul says. He says, people, they can finally come to a place where their spirit is um, rejecting God. Their heart is hard and their mind is gone. And when they come to that place, they still are searching and hungering and ravenous to worship something and someone uh, that will give them life. And so they start to spiritually implode because they're searching for something. They're like a spiritual black hole that they can't get hold of. And so they start scraping and scratching and pulling at whatever they can get that looks alive around them. And that's why Paul says in the last few verses of that passage that people become backbiters. 
they become haters of God. They become lovers of money. They become disobedient to parents because they are spiritual Tyrannosaurus Rexes. They're spiritual black holes searching for life. And just to illustrate this, I said to the young man, uh, we were sitting there eating lunch, and I said, you know, um, you look like a really decent young man. You know, you're dressed um, very uh, decently. Uh, you have a smile on your face. Anyone who looked at you would say that you look like a nice person. Um, and, you know, we're sitting here eating. I said, this uh, double dip, French dip sandwich, you're drinking, you and I are drinking uh, lemonade. Uh, we're breathing air in our lungs and we're talking, we're relating to one another. And I said to this young man, but I want you to imagine something. All of those things are giving you life right now, food, drink, air, uh, relating. But if we were to take those things away from you for an extended period of time, what would happen to you? What would happen to me if the same thing happened to me? I said, if we took away water from you uh, for like 48 hours, what would happen to you? If we took away food from you for like a week, what would happen to you? If we took away air from you for like 30 seconds, what would happen to you? If we put you in a, a, a prison cell, turned out the lights for like a month with no human interaction, what would happen to you? And I said, um, even the most decent person under all those circumstances would immediately turn into a ravenous human being. And uh, they would just grab at anything that could quench their thirst or give, relieve their hunger or you know, give them relationship or just cause them to have life again. And that's why Romans chapter 1 made sense to me at the end of the passage. And I said to him in the end, if you are in a place where you're not worshiping God in the way that God desires for a proper relationship with him, you're cutting yourself off from the spiritual life that God can give to you. He is the source of life. And when you do that, um, you're going to spiritually implode and turn into a ravenous spiritual human being. You may look good on the outside, but what is happening inside of you is decay and it's disintegration. And so I, I was able to say that because of the whole counsel of God reminded me of uh, how to interpret that. Um, final point for this morning is that not only did Paul give them courageously the whole counsel of God, but he also warned them against false teachers in the church. Verse 29 and 30, it says, Fierce wolves, Paul said, will come in among you after I leave. They will not spare the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul reminded the Ephesian elders, not just how he gave them a whole counsel of God, but that after he leaves, false teachers would arise among them to try and lead them astray. He said that for three years, he did, not, he did not cease in warning them night and day that this would happen when he left, that these men would arise. And it asks the question, what does the church do amidst all these competing voices in our culture and even in church? Um, how do we discern the ones that are false? And I want to just give you four um, reflections on this briefly, uh, really from the past uh, month that we've been looking at these different churches in the book of Acts. How do you know if the voice that you're listening to is false or if it's true? Uh, what Paul would call a, a fierce wolf that comes in among you to lead people astray. Number one, uh, you listen to what people are saying or teaching and you do what the Berean church did. We looked at that uh, about a month ago. In Acts chapter 17, the Berean church, when Paul showed up to teach them, what did they do? They searched the scriptures diligently to see if what Paul was saying was true. And so the first thing you want to do when you hear teaching is to ask yourself, is this what the Bible, the whole counsel of the Bible teaches? Second is once you've determined that what's being taught is not true, um, you want to correct that, that to untruth with the truth. 
You want to give the true gospel, the true truths of Scripture uh, to correct that falsehood. Uh, this is what Paul did with the Athenian church in Acts 17. When he showed up at Athens and at the Areopagus Hill, he spoke to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And he said, um, there is one God, and this one God has judged the world through this one man named Jesus, and he has given evidence of that by raising him from the dead. This would have been an offense and a correction to the Epicureans and Stoics who did not believe in one God. They did not believe that um, God would come down as man, and they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead through this one man, and they didn't believe in faith in, in that. And so Paul corrected them. Um, and so a third thing we want to do uh, is we not want, just want to search scriptures, correct people through gospel truths, but we want to uh, remember that there comes a point sometimes where we have to leave. We have to leave people who are consistently hard-hearted or who are teaching falsehoods that become a danger to the church. Uh, this is what Paul did in Acts chapter 18 at Corinth. Uh, when he was ministering in the synagogue to the Jews and they were hard-hearted, they were opposing him. It says in Acts 18 that Paul said, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent of this. From now on, I am going to the Gentiles. I'm leaving you Jews that oppose me. You've had your opportunity. I'm going to people who are open to what I am saying. This is the same thing Jesus did multiple times with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, it says at the end of Matthew 13, when he gave them all these parables, that they, their hearts were hardened, they didn't understand, or they chose not to understand, and Jesus just left them at that point. It is important for the church to be able to leave unbelief at some point. It is important for the church to be able to make a discerning call and say, there comes a point when people are not just unbelieving, but teaching error, and we must separate from that. That's not unloving, that's wise. That's not, um, um, not, that's not being incompassionate un, or, or cruel to people. That's being uh, protecting the flock and being godly. Um, finally, we not only want to search the scriptures, correct with gospel truths, leave unbelief teacher, unbelieving teachers, but we want to warn the church. We want to warn the church. This is what Paul did in Acts chapter 20 at Ephesus. He says he, for three years he did not stop warning them night and day to evaluate and to stay away from savage wolves that would come in to lead them astray. And so we need to follow that as well, church. Uh, God wants City Bible Church to be a strong church, to be a courageous church to be a church that gives the whole counsel of the word of God, to be a discerning church, to be able to tell the error from the lie. Um, do not allow your life to demonstrate courage in the area of sports or business or some other kind of hobby, and you be known as a very courageous person in those arenas, but not being courageous and giving people the whole counsel of the word of God. God is looking, church. He's looking, Christian. He's looking for people. And I think he's especially looking for men. Because Paul was a man, and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders here. Especially men in the church, but also women, um, who will courageously share the whole counsel of the word of God. Whether that's personally with people, or in a formal teaching capacity. 
Um, he's looking for people who will step forward and be courageous to be his voice and to say it is God's voice that matters most, not man's voice. I mean, you shouldn't even care what I say or think if it's not coming from God and if I'm not calling you to follow me only as I follow Christ. And so uh, we want to declare that confidently and we want to step forward in courage and not be fearful, especially in this area. And we want to be watchful and we want to warn the church because not everyone sees it that way. And uh, at any moment, people are willing to step forward and try and destroy the church through the lie. There are many things that can destroy a church. Um, rampant sin that's going through a church, um, um, an unloving church that can destroy a church. But one of the main threats that scripture talks about as well is when uh, false ideas and false teachings come to the center of the church. And sometimes that can come from people inside the church, but even people now in our digital age, whatever videos you're watching on social media, um, uh, you want to always be evaluating that and saying, is this true or false, true or false, and true or false, according to the whole counsel of the word of God. And I think if we do that, church, God will bless that. And um, you will be built up in the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, our church will prevail, and God will use your life mightily.